Hey everybody, this is John Semper Jr. I was the producer and head writer of Spider-Man the Animated Series and you are listening to the amazing Spider-Talk and I'm really sorry that Peter never met up with Mary Jane at the end of the series. No, really, seriously, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry that that happened. Sorry. Welcome to The Amazing Spider Talk. My name is Dan Kavazdan, and I'm the editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. If this is your first time listening to the show, I typically am joined by my banter buddy, Mark Giannacchio, of the Chasing Amazing blog, to discuss the most current issues of Amazing Spider-Man and a classic issue of our choosing. Because it is Thanksgiving this week, and Mark and I are not able to record a new episode, we thought we would record some special episodes for you to listen to until we return. I hope you've already listened to Mark's interview with amazing Spider-Man artist Giuseppe Comancoli that we released last week. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. This week, I have something extra special for all of you. I'm very proud to welcome John Semper Jr., the writer and producer of the Spider-Man, the animated series television show from the 90s, as a special guest for our newest Spider-Talk and their Amazing Friends episode. John was very generous with his time and provided incredible insights into the history and production of the show. Remember, if any time during the interview you hear this sound... Please check out your iOS device for a link to an article, video, or image to enhance your listening experience. Well, grab your web shooters, everyone, and activate the lights on your spider belts because it's time that we got into our conversation with John Semper Jr. Everybody, this is Dan Gavazdan again for Amazing Spider Talk, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm John Semper Jr. I was the uh, producer and the head writer for Spider-Man: The Animated Series, which we began in 1994, exactly 20 years ago. It's really exciting to have you here, John. Um, I, I was fortunate enough to uh, attend your 20th anniversary uh, get-together or panel at Kamikaze in L.A. this year, and uh, it was a real treat. I'm glad you could make it. That was a lot of fun for me. I uh, pulled it together fairly quickly, and it came out perfectly, so I had a really wonderful time. It was a great way to kick off the uh, anniversary of the series. Yeah, and uh, it, so it's been running for 20 years, and it's still on the air today. Is that is that true? Like, it's still in reruns? Uh, yeah, I don't follow it on a daily basis, obviously, but, uh, you know, every, every once in a while I will peruse the schedule. It seems to turn up on Disney XD channel um, every, every now and then. They were running it pretty heavily just before they started their new Spider-Man series. 
series, but I think they still stick my series on on the weekends. And I find that astonishing because certainly when we were making it, we did not think that 20 years later it was still going to be on the air. And, um, you know, it's, it's an old-looking series. We, we, we did not shoot it in high def. And so it has the um, sort of the standard uh, image ratio that automatically tells you that something is old now. <laughs> but um, I'm very, very honored that the show just continues to keep chugging along and, uh, and finds new fans every, you know, every five years or seven years. And, um, yeah, I'm very proud of it. So I'm curious, uh, you know, to know a little bit about more, more about your history with, uh, I guess, you know, television and, and writing. Uh, wh- where, what were you doing prior to this show's uh, uh, initial start? That's a bit of a long story. I'll try to tell it very, very quickly. Um, I originally came to Los Angeles from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I had graduated Harvard with a degree in visual and environmental studies. I came out here specifically to do film and specifically to work in animation if possible because I had had a long time love for animation. Uh, the first work I got out here, I became a union editor working at a company called Ruby Spears, which was, which was kind of a, a similar company to Hanna-Barbera. It was owned by the same parent company. Ken Ruby and Joe Spears had worked at, at Hanna-Barbera. They, in fact, they had created Scooby-Doo. Oh. They, they spun off and created their own company, and they were doing a whole bunch of shows like Plastic Man and Mighty Man and Yuck and uh, uh, Pound Puppies, and, and eventually they did Thundar the Barbarian. I, didn't, I wasn't around when they did that. Anyway, I started out working for them in editorial and segued eventually over to live action. I was working on a TV show called Ripley's Believe It or Not, one of the editors at Ripley's took me with him when he left to go do feature films. So my first official feature film credit was a, a movie called DC Cab, which starred Gary Busey and Mr. T and uh, Bill Maher and, and a lot of people. It was shot uh, in Washington and primarily on the Universal lot. So I was working on the Universal lot. And then I had an opportunity to do freelance write for uh, Hanna-Barbera. And I started writing cartoons with my partner, Cynthia Friedloeb. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I left that one part. After after Ruby Spears, I actually did end up doing editorial at Hanna-Barbera. So I worked in the editing department at Hanna-Barbera for a couple of seasons. And that was kind of how I met the people that enabled me to have an opportunity to do some writing. Then I left to go do live action. That's when I left to go do Ripley's Believe It or Not hmm. and ended up at DC Cab. And while I was at Universal, I was freelance writing at, at Hanna-Barbera. Eventually, I sold so many scripts. My partner and I sold so many scripts, primarily to ABC on uh, Scooby-Doo, that Hanna-Barbera made us an offer to be there on the premises and be staff writers. So I was a staff writer there for a number of years, and then I uh, segued when Margaret Lesh, who was the head of Hanna-Barbera at the time, when she left to go work for a new company called Marvel Productions, she took us with her, and I segued over to that, and that's where I started uh, spending a good deal of time with a gentleman by the name of Stan Lee. Um, and then from that, I worked, uh, when I was there, I did uh, Fraggle Rock for Jim Henson. Oh, wow. uh, got, got to know Jim very well, uh, and segued from that to a, to a uh, contract with NBC. So I was under contract to NBC for two years. We were 
uh, my partner and I. And then uh, from that, oh, I, I, I did a cartoon show called Kid and Play that led to me writing one of their features for Warner Brothers, a feature by, by the name of A Class Act. From there, let's see, uh, after that, I I spun off on my own as a writer, and I uh, uh, was working on a, a PBS show called Puzzle Place when Stan gave me the call that they were in trouble on Spider-Man, and would I be interested in coming over and taking over the show because they were having a lot of production difficulties. And I, of course, said yes, and I left Puzzle Place angering just about everybody on Puzzle Place. I'm sure they still hate my guts to this very day. Uh, but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to do my favorite comic book hero of all time, which was Spider-Man, which I am happy was the right decision because no one remembers Puzzle Place, and now I'm best known for having done Spider-Man. <laughs> so um, what, speaking of, you know, Spider-Man's your favorite hero, what was your history with the character to, to that point? As a 13, 14, 15-year-old, traveling the subways of Boston on my way to and from what would be junior high and high school, even though my junior high and high was combined into one school, I used to buy comic books at the kiosks there in the subway. And I suddenly realized that there was this company called Marvel and that they were doing these kinds of stories, the likes of which I had never read before in a comic book. Prior to that, I'd been, like everyone else, I'd read DC Comics. I'd read Superman and Batman, and I'd grown up on all of that stuff. But the stuff that was happening in these Marvel comics was revolutionary. And I probably tapped into Fantastic Four around about issue number four and I probably tapped into Spider-Man around about the time really probably the second or third issue of of um, of the action you know of Spider-Man uh, I know that Spider-Man began with Amazing Fantasy and I don't quite know the history of when he was spun off into his own comic book but I probably picked up the second or third Spider-Man story having just missed the uh, the beginnings of, of, of both of these lines. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was riveted. Uh, and, and my introduction to Spider-Man was this wonderful continuing storyline that, you know, I could barely wait for the next issue. I mean, it was, it was sometimes painful to know that you had to wait an entire month for that next issue to see how that plot line was going to resolve itself. So I became a big Marvel fan. When I went to college, I had Marvel posters up on my uh, apartment walls. I had those these wonderful blacklight Marvel posters on, on my walls. And when Stan Lee, the man himself, came to speak at Harvard, I paid my $15 to go listen to him speak, and it was one of the best nights ever. Um, I, I told Stan once, I said, Stan, I... I, I initially paid Bunny to, to see you, and I've been paying ever since. <laughs> uh, I think recently, you know, it's funny. I, I went to some convention, and just on a whim, he was he was taking pictures with people, and I actually paid to wait in line and surprise him and have a picture taken <laughs> with him. He was, he was shocked, but uh, I feel like I've been paying for Stan my entire life. 
anyway, um, I was madly in love with Marvel Comics. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, yeah, I, I just I thought they were the greatest things on the planet. So, And Spider-Man was my favorite Marvel character. So um sounds like you were brought in on this project when it had already kind of started and maybe hit a snag in the road. Did they have you kind of give your own pitch for how the show would be handled? Like what was your goal with this series to differentiate it from the previous series? Well, I came in when the show was uh, in trouble. <clears throat> and I think Stan, I didn't have to audition because Stan knew me pretty well and he knew my work. And we got along, we got along very well. And he, I think he basically didn't want to be bothered having to fix it. And he trusted in the fact that he knew that I would know how to fix it. So I didn't have to audition. I was, I was simply brought in as the solution. Um, I started from scratch. There was nothing that had been done. They basically kind of squandered, I don't know, months. I think they had maybe squandered away about nine or ten months. And when I came in, very little had been done. I was actually surprised at how little had been done, but I just started from scratch. And I, you know, I, I had a pretty good background at that point in how to get a show up and running. And, and I wrote a very quick Bible that took advantage of the fact that I understood the character inside out. Now, I had watched every iteration of Spider-Man in animated form as, as a, you know, from a, just from being a fan. I had started when I was young watching the Ralph Bakshi series and I'd seen everything else. I'd seen every Marvel thing that had ever been done, uh, going all the way back to the old Grant Ray Lawrence cartoons. Mm-hmm. I had pretty strong opinions about what I wanted to do with the character. Um, the What I did when I started the show was I went back and rewatched every incarnation of Spider-Man on screen, and there weren't that many. I watched some of the Bakshi cartoons, and I was shocked at how primitive they now looked. When, you know, what looked to me really great when I was younger, and probably or was really quite revolutionary in its day for Saturday morning, now looked incredibly primitive and, and a little bit silly. So that, that was a very, a, an interesting learning experience. <laughs> I, watched, I watched Spider-Man and Friends, and, um, you know, that was more of a Saturday morning cartoon show. I know that show has its fans, and I don't deny them uh, their, uh, their excitement over it, but it was very much a Saturday morning cartoon show. Yeah. Um, I watched the Japanese Spider-Man with the giant robot. <laughs> yes. Because I love that stuff, and I've always been a huge fan of uh, Japanese film and television. And uh, In fact, my very first screen credit... In Boston, we did a series at WGBH called The Japanese Film. It was produced by a gentleman named Sheldon Renan. And all of the uh, the openings and closings were shot in Boston at WGBH, uh, uh, featuring Edwin Reischauer, who had been Kennedy's ambassador to Japan. And I was part of the crew that had shot that. And I also did some research for them. They had sent me to Washington, and uh, I had gotten newsreel footage from the Library of Congress, all of which is to say that I had been introduced to Japanese film from a very early age. So I, I had a tremendous interest and a tremendous respect for it. 
but that's my very first television credit was working on a Japanese film mm. for um, for um, public television before it was PBS. Um, anyway, so um, I watched the Japanese Spider-Man, and that was fun. And we kind of did a little. I did a little tribute to it at the very end when uh, Peter Parker, one of the many dimensions that he ends up in is the dimension of the guy where everything had gone right in his life, the Peter Parker who had everything go right, and he had a giant robot. <laughs> the whole reason I gave him a giant robot was because of that Japanese uh, TV show. Did you have access to bringing all of these various Spider-Man into your like that, that particular storyline? I know now there's like this Spider-Verse story going yes. on in the comics, but there's very few, there's a few of them they cannot use, so... Um, I don't know how the legal tie-up was back then. Uh, first of all, I think it's really fascinating that they're doing the, this multiverse and the new Spider-Man show. It's sort of like <laughs> like they they kind of haven't come up with anything new because you know I I, I did that and and I thought that um, it was done well the first time. But at any rate, be that as it may. Um, I had no legal constraints on me whatsoever. I could pretty much do anything I wanted with the Marvel Universe. And uh, I don't think they have that now because of all the different, everything being separated, you know, all the different rights being spread out amongst these different movie companies. So I, I had a, a, an embarrassment of riches. I could do pretty much anything I wanted. Um, and that final story arc had a lot to do with the uh, toy line. Um, I always was trying to find a way to incorporate... Well, it was part of my mandate with the series was to showcase the toy line. And I, and I thought, well, this will kind of be an interesting way to do that, you know, to bring in some of these toys that kids are buying and make them a part of our Spider-Man universe and give it a credible reason. You know, there was Spider-Armor, Spider-Man. You know, Toy Biz was always coming up with these crazy variations on Spider-Man, and some of them were really quite silly. And I thought, well, what if I took, you know, this multiverse idea and I put Spider-Armor Spider-Man in there? And suddenly there's a credible justification for why this essentially very silly toy exists. So that was kind of a little bit of the inspiration for that. But um, getting back to your original question where you asked me if I, if I had some specific ideas. Yeah, I did. I had some very specific ideas, and I think that the uh, battle of getting the show on the air, for me, when I came on, was getting my ideas to come across amidst a lot of the political turmoil that was going on surrounding the series at that time. So what kind of access did you have to Stan Lee as an executive producer? You know, there's rumblings that he, like commented on that he wanted to be involved in every script and things like that. So like what what part in uh, what role as an executive producer did he play? Probably more than he wanted. <laughs> um, one of the reasons that Stan wanted me on the show was I think he trusted me and he knew that I could get it out the door and he really did not want to be bothered at that particular time because he had a lot going on as he always does. And that was that was fine. You know, I mean animation isn't his world and he wanted the show to be good, but he did not want it to take up a whole lot of his time. Now, it ended up doing that in the first 13 episodes because um, Avi, who was very much in control of the show, wanted Stan to be involved. 
So Stan was very heavily involved in the first 13 episodes. We would have table readings where it would be me, Avi, Stan, Tony Pastor, our voice director, Bob Richardson, our supervising producer, and whoever happened to have written the script. I would usually bring them in as well if it wasn't me. Um, and we would we would thrash these scripts out in these long, all-day table-read meetings. I mean, some of them went on for hours. And there would be a lot of haggling and a lot of uh, discussion. And Stan was right in there. And Stan, you know, I, I can still see, I still remember, when I watched some of the episodes in the first 13, I can remember which lines were Stan's. <laughs> because sometimes he'd just get very frustrated and say, no, look, he's going to say this, you know, and start crossing out lines. And now he's, This is what he's going to say. I remember in Day of the Chameleon, uh, there's a, there's, there are some lines by Nick Fury that are pure Stan. You know, I had written something and Stan would just say, no, have him say this, you know, and cross out my lines. <laughs> just, you, know, you got it, Jameson, get it, you know, or do it or something like that. And Stan... Stan's a brilliant writer. There's no question that Stan... There's no question in my mind that Stan is a brilliant writer. And his lines were always the right one. Speaking right of ones. speaking of, uh, of Jameson, uh, mm-hmm. didn't Stan want to do the voice of Jameson at one point? Very much so. Yes. Yes. And very much on my series. He so very much wanted to be J. Jonah Jameson. But we were able to cast Ed Asner, and that was better casting. Yeah, so, I, I love that Asner in the show. Yeah, he. But I think Stan was always a little bit, a little bit bitter that that he did not get cast as J. Jonah Jameson in the series. So yeah, he gets to be J. Jonah Jameson in real life. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was great having him involved, and uh, I've always gotten along really well with him. I have nothing but great respect and admiration for him. I get very tired of people that bash him and his contributions to comics and to Marvel. And they want to make this the creation of that artist, and that one's the creation of this artist. And it's not true. You know, Stan was the driving creative force behind everything that Marvel became. Nobody got credit for anything in a comic book until Stan started giving people credit on a regular basis. I mean, I never knew who drew anything or who wrote anything in a comic book until Stan started putting those, uh, those credit banners on the first page. And I had no idea um, that writers were involved until Stan started making it clear that writers were involved. Um, but he, he's really, he is a genius when it comes to thinking up storylines, thinking up plot twists, coming up with incredibly clever characters. I think people have a hard time separating the creator, the creative entity, from you know the public relations entity and both were integral to the popularity of marvel when we were when we were just reading those first marvel comic books and stan started doing things like you know having catchphrases like face front true believers and you know the merry marvel marching society and these soap books stanley's soapbox that stuff was cool it seems kind of corny now but that stuff was very cool, circa nineteen, you know, sixty-five or whatever. And uh, everything that comic books are now starts with Stan Lee, 
as far as I'm concerned. So, um, so you know, the hell with the Stan Lee bashers. I'm really tired of that. I, I'm right there with you. Anytime I read those old issues, I, I, I hear Stan Lee's voice. And, yeah. like, and that's, that was the appeal of them. Was you, It's almost like more than the characters, you get to hang out with Stan Lee for a little while. Like that was the yes. appeal. Yes, and I think that's where the PR comes in because you really did feel like Marvel was a friend. And he was the guy, he was the face of that friend. And you felt for the first time that you were being heard, you know, when you said you liked a certain issue or you didn't like a certain issue, you would get a reply back from Stan in the comic books uh, in the let- on the letters page instead of some anonymous person writing a reply the way that it had been at DC. Mm-hmm. And he really put a face on Marvel. And now people come along and, you know, they're talking about, oh, well, you know, he's a huckster and this, that, and the other. And that's just foolishness. It's you do not get Marvel without the genius of Stan Lee. And I am a firm believer in the fact that he is really he's the one that made it all happen. Uh, So anyway, there we go. Back to your show. Um, You know, one of the things that really set the show aside, uh, you know, when it it was released and, and now maybe we see a lot more of this kind of storytelling was the serialized uh, nature of the show rather than making it like self-contained every weekend yes. um, was, you know, I, I'm sure that was a major push by you. Did you get any pushback to, to, you know, having the show be uh, told in this way? I got nothing but pushback. <laughs> um, <laughs> for me, I've said this before. I was recreating for a whole new generation, the way that Marvel had been presented to me in the comic books when I was young. What the comic book industry was when Marvel exploded on the scene was exactly what Saturday morning was when our show exploded on the scene. You know, they were not used to episodic stories. They were not used to stories that had any real drama. They were not used to stories on Saturday morning that had any kind of character conflict of any depth. And I wanted to shatter all of those barriers and make this show be what the Spider-Man comic book had been for me in in the comic, you know, reading world when I was younger. So I recreated that. Now, in order to do that, I had to piss a lot of people off. And they're still probably pissed off at me. You know, I didn't walk away from this show with with, uh, glowing tributes. There was no internet. So I had no idea what the fans were thinking, and you were probably all too young to to even matter, quite frankly, in the court of public opinion. But in the industry, uh, I was <laughs> I was not exactly uh, anyone's favorite person by the time I finished Spider-Man because I had just done so many things that people had told me not to do. You take something like Six Forgotten Warriors. I had wanted to end every chapter of Six Forgotten Warriors on a cliffhanger, and finally margaret lesh bless her heart because i would not have a career without margaret lesh but she was running at that time fox and she just basically said tell john semper that he absolutely has to stop doing cliffhangers period (laughs) now she had told me you know i had gotten this word earlier and i had ignored it and so finally when she put her foot down i had to stop and as a result, uh, I don't think there are any cliffhangers in Six Forgotten Warriors. I think around about that time, I just simply had to stop. And I think I took, I took all of the resolutions 
So if, if, if I'd written an episode and it had a cliffhanger and then I had a resolution at the beginning of the following episode, I took all the resolutions and I put them at the end of the previous episode. I remember taking those chunks of script pages and just moving them over to the, new, to the uh, previous draft. Oh, that's funny. Good script. <laughs> Um, but no, I had to fight every every step of the way, and um, several times uh, I was nearly fired. Not several times, once in the uh, during the first thirteen, I was nearly fired, and uh, I had a lot of political. Um, uh, there was a lot of there were a lot of political machinations going on during the first thirteen to get rid of me. Um, so I'm enjoying, I'm thoroughly enjoying now the anniversary of a show that has done so well that uh, other shows that were on the air at the same time, you know, are, are just kind of no longer even viable. And this show continues to just keep chugging along. I'm very proud of that because I had to fight very hard to make that happen. So let's get into the meat and potatoes of the content in the show. Um, I guess one of the things that always has struck me you know, even I think as a, as a as a child when I when I watched the show, and and I will say I credit the show for a lot of my love of the character, and uh, and uh, I guess even just all the things I do on the internet, you know, to write about the character. I think a lot of it stemmed with your show. Um, and I love uh, to hear that. Yeah. So, I, th- per- personal thank you to you for uh, turning me on to to the character uh, that has meant so much to me. But one of the things that always has stuck out to me is the decision to start Peter as a student at ESU, rather than showing his origins or even put- placing him in high school as so many other comics and series and you know iterations of the character have done. Can you talk to that decision? Sure. Uh, there were certain decisions that had been made prior to my getting there that I uh, stuck with. Not very many. Um, this was one I didn't bother fighting. They had decided that they wanted to have him in college, and that was okay with me. So I did not uh, make that decision, but it was not one that I had a huge problem with. So um, I don't know why they made that decision. I don't know what was behind it. Um, So, yeah, I really can't speak to it. But when I got there... And that was a decision that had been made. I really didn't fight it. it. It seemed to streamline things for me, quite frankly, because there's a lot more stuff that can go on at a college than you can have go on at a high school. And I, I have never been terribly fond of writing about high schools. I, I did one feature-length film, uh, a class act for Warner Brothers, which was based in high school. And, and I really... I didn't enjoy my high school years enough that I really wanted to keep reliving them in the media. Hmm. So I had no problem with, with it being a college. Um, I'll tell you a funny thing, though, about Peter's look. And this isn't exactly what you were asking, but you'll probably find this interesting. Sure. When I got there, they, they uh, had designed Peter to look pretty much the way that he looked in the uh, Johnny Romita comic books, if that's the correct pronunciation of his name. Romita. Um, is it Ramita? Yeah. Okay, good. So the Johnny Ramita comic books, we drew Peter. We initially had Peter looking exactly as he looked in those comic books with that kind of crew cut kind of uh, hairstyle and, and the whole deal. And um, one day, <laughs> Bob Richardson sent me this picture. He, he, I think he faxed it to me and he said, this is what Peter looks like now. <laughs> And it was the guy that you ended up seeing in the in the uh, in the show, 
And, and it was so radically different that, quite frankly, when I first saw it, I didn't like it because it wasn't the Peter Parker that I had grown up with. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, it was Stan. You know, one day Stan just got off, woke up on the wrong side of the bed, I guess would be the best expression. And he just decided that this Peter Parker that we had been working with looked old-fashioned, and he wanted something that looked, you know, younger and hipper, or his idea of what younger and hipper looked like. <laughs> so Bob literally drew this drawing while Stan was describing it to him, and they faxed it back and forth, and that was the look of Peter Parker that they came up with. So, um, you know, things were... things. Things were in a constant state of flux in those first uh, few months of figuring the show out, and and uh, that was one of the things that did change. But anyway, was, what was the other thing you asked me? You asked me about the college decision. Yes. Was there another decision? Well, I what mean, more about his not showing his origin story initially. Oh, yes, that's right. Okay, the origin story. That was me. Um, I felt that starting the Spider-Man saga with the origin story was predictable. And I never wanted to be predictable on this series. I just never, you know, I used to tell my writers, we are going to surprise the viewer every week. So you could never turn on the TV and go, oh, I know what Spider-Man's going to be this week. It just, we would always throw something new and interesting your way. Now, um, it was partially me. Uh, because the other thing was, I really did want to get into a, a rousing adventure story right up front. This, the political atmosphere at that time, as is always the case with a brand new show, was highly volatile. Everyone had ideas, and everyone thought their ideas were the best ideas, and uh, they had already let go of uh, one writer-producer, my predecessor. Um, and, and, and I really think that wasn't his fault. I think that he uh, was up against some pretty heavy-duty politics and, and uh, uh, fell prey to them. So I think he probably would have done a marvelous job. But, you know, part of surviving in this industry, it's part creative and it's part po political, and sometimes it's maybe 80% political and 20% creative. And so I would say on Spider-Man it was very much more the 80-20 kind of, kind of percentage. And I don't think that, that um, uh, my predecessor was, was able to handle that amount of, of political volatility. I got into that situation, and when I started figuring out what was going on, I thought, you know what, I'm going to pick a story. We're going to start with a story. Because initially I had thought, uh, maybe we'll start with Venom. Just to, you know, just that was the hottest thing going on in the Spider-Man world. Wow, that would have been an auspicious debut. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I was going to dive in, and strangely enough, the uh, the the people who were not so much for that uh, was the network. It was one of the few times that I think the network got it right, where they said, you know, maybe you should build the Venom. <laughs> and, and I thought, okay, that's that's reasonable. But no, I had started out. Uh, we had done a Venom outline, and uh, I think I had Len Wein working on it. And bless his heart, Len Wein is a tremendous talent and a good friend. But back in those days, Len Wein was usually late about <laughs> about delivering mostly everything. <laughs> and Len was late, uh, and so um, and and you know, the longer it took to get 
Venom going, the more volatility there was. And, and then I had people trying to get me fired. And I thought, you know what? The smartest thing that I can do is to take a simple story that has a beginning and a middle and an end and sticks very close to the comic book so that nobody can argue with its provenance, with its origin, and to just do that. So um, in, the, in the early Spider-Man comics, Stan very much did beginnings, middles, and ends of his stories, and one of the earliest was the Lizard story. And I thought, just to minimize all the bickering and all the arguing and all the egos, I'm going to pick a story, I'm going to stick very close to the way Stan rolled it out, so that nobody will be able to argue with it. Politically, nobody will be able to argue with it. And I'm just going to do it. We're just going to do the best damn job that we could. And um, I had naively had this idea at the very beginning that I wanted to bring as many comic book writers into the show as possible. That turned out to not be a good idea because comic book writers are not the best when it comes to writing beginnings, middles, and ends. You know, they, they take full advantage of the fact that you can let a comic book go on and on and on forever, and so they're not really that, that good at structure. To but my, the one guy that I brought in... Hmm? To my knowledge, you had, like, Jerry Conway and Marv Wolfman on the show? Yeah, well, the one, I was going to say the one guy that I brought in that really, really knew what he was doing as a, from a scriptwriting perspective was Jerry Conway. And uh, I had brought Jerry in to do the lizard story and bless his heart man he's a real gentleman and a real talent he came in and he delivered a first draft and it was it 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 calmed the waters so now you've got you've got a story that was originally written by stan lee and now i've got jerry conway so no one can argue that jerry doesn't know how you know to handle spider-man and he delivered a solid first draft that was very workable. I think the only thing Jerry hesitated about, I had wanted to shoehorn in Eddie Brock, and Jerry wasn't quite sure there was room for it. And I said, no, 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 I, you know, because I, I knew I kind of wanted to build Eddie Brock's character a little bit leading up to Venom. So um, he, uh, like the good trooper and the, uh, the really consummate professional that he is, he, you know, once he, once he registered his complaint, that was it. And he wrote it the way I had asked. He delivered a really solid first draft, and then that's what started the show because everybody now accepted that, and all the political volatility calmed down, and we were able to now concentrate on the creative, and uh, that lizard story is what started the show, and so there are a couple of reasons why I didn't start with an origin story, and and that was one of them. Awesome. Um, speaking of... Uh you know, Venom and, and all these characters. A lot of the show seems very um, influenced by what was going on in the 90s comics. Like Gwen Stacy, you know, makes one appearance very later on in the show. Um, it's very focused on the Mary Jane Peter relationship. Morbius is a much larger character than he has been in the comics. What Did you feel some kind of like pull towards syncing the show up with the comics of the 90s? I mean, even Carnage has got a big role in the show. No. Actually, I, I wasn't. I didn't read the comics of the '90s, and nobody had any great amount of respect for them. Marvel was um, in very bad shape at that time. Um, I mentioned this in another interview, and, and, and surprised and shocked the interviewer. Marvel had no input into our show whatsoever. Wow, really? None. None. Avi did that on purpose because I mean that was Avi's doing. 
Uh, I think in the very beginning in the Bible, I got some notes from Marvel, and he basically called them up and said, you will have nothing to do with the animated show. And then he called me up and he said, John, Marvel will have, will have nothing to do with the animated show. So I was liberated from Marvel. <clears throat> and the reason was that Marvel was not in very good shape creatively at that time. The, uh, the company was nearly bankrupt, and it was not really in any way affiliated with Marvel Films Animation, other than the fact that we were doing their characters. So I had no oversight from Marvel. Plenty of oversight on my side of things, but no oversight from Marvel. And I paid no attention to the Marvel comics. There was a lot of uh, griping and grousing about the Clone Saga I was not particularly fond of the Clone Saga, so that's why I kind of made a little bit of fun of it at the very end. But, no, you know, while it was... The only thing that we had to do was we did have to have Venom because, obviously, one of the few hits of the 90s was Venom. And we did have to have Carnage, or at least I thought we had to have Carnage. Um, so I felt it was important to put those two characters in there because people would be looking for them. The Gwen Stacy reference at the end was purely my having fun. Um, I did not want to do Gwen Stacy in the show because we would have had to kill her off and we were not really, that wasn't something a network was ready to do, kill off a character in the course of a cartoon show. So I thought, well, what if I take this obscure character named Felicia Hardy, whom no one was paying any attention to whatsoever and gave her all of the qualities that I would have given to Gwen Stacy, whom, as a fan, I loved. I loved Gwen Stacy. I thought she was a wonderful character. So basically, Felicia was my Gwen Stacy. And, you know, I made her a little snooty, and, and I gave her a whole personality. That was all me, because Felicia did, did not have any of that personality in the comic books. Um, and she was not a big character. When I go to, as I said on the panel, when I go to these conventions now and I see all these women running around in these black cat costumes, I'm very proud of that because nobody was paying attention to Felicia Hardy or the black cat or Deborah Whitman or yeah, Michael Morbius. She was Morbius. a huge character. You know, I mean, I, 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 what I wanted to do... <clears throat> I had really thought that the, the comic book had lost its way because it had gotten away from the roots of what made Spider-Man interesting. And I wanted to bring back all this really cool stuff that had been forgotten about. Little things like his spider light. You know that light that he had in his belt? Yeah. And he used to shine a Spider-Man insignia on the wall when he, you know, when he tackled criminals. I wanted to bring that light back. So you see it in the Night of the Lizard episode. He turns on that light when he's in the subway tunnels trying to find the lizard. I wanted to play with all of that stuff that I thought had just been overlooked. And so I was always digging up these characters that nobody was paying any attention to. I remember at the very end when I decided to use Madam Web, and again, I've said this uh, in, in recent interviews, um, Abby's words to me were, I can't make a toy out of a frigging old broad. <laughs> And one of my most cherished possessions is the toy that he made out of this old broad. <laughs> he did end up making a Madam Web character and uh, an action figure out of the character. And I'm very proud of that because 
I was always just digging up these characters. So, yeah, putting Felicia at the very end was just me having fun. You know, we, we kind of couldn't do her in this series. And I thought, well, it'd be really cool if in one of these alternate universes where everything went right for Spider-Man, he married Felicia. And they were Gwen. husband and wife. I'm sorry, Gwen. I'm sorry. It's okay. Gwen. I still get them mixed up. <laughs> uh, yeah, so putting Gwen in at the end, you know, I, I thought, wouldn't it be great if he ended up marrying Gwen? And... Um, that was fun for me, you know. And at that point, I, I had no oversight by the end. So I could do whatever I wanted. It, the, the most amazing thing about Spider-Man was that for three years, and especially after the first 13 episodes, you got a TV show that was basically, from a writing standpoint, developed by one person. And you'll never get that again. <laughs> it just doesn't in American animation anymore because there are so many committees now that are overseeing everything and there are so many corporate interests but I really had free reign um, especially after uh, episode 13 well let's talk about the animation itself um, it was interesting at the time it blurred CGI and hand-drawn animation um, that it was pretty revolutionary at the time though it, you know might be a little aged uh, today what led to this yeah. decision uh, of using this type of animation and de depicting New York this way? I cannot answer any of those questions. <clears throat> Excuse me. I can't answer any of those questions because Bob Richardson was solely responsible for the animation, for the look of the show, um, for the editing. Uh, everything that ended up on screen visually was it, pretty much handled by Bob. Now, I will say this. <clears throat> Bob was really the perfect person to do the Spider-Man that I wanted to see brought to the screen because there's something very, um, very pedantic about Bob. He really he saw bringing this thing to life as being an extension of reality. So instead of the kind of Bruce Tim thing where you get this highly stylized idea of what something should look like, Bob was very, you know, let's bring it to life the way that it would be if we were shooting it as a live-action movie. So he would stand there and he would pour over maps of New York, you know, like when that shuttle is coming in in the, uh, in the, in the first episode of the Venom saga. Bob would literally map out the route that the shuttle would take before it crashed onto the bridge. And he would map out what area of New York things were happening in, or, you know, in the case of the shuttle, what area it would be flying over. And this would all infuse the look of the show. You know, the look of the show was very realistic. And that was Bob's approach. And quite frankly, from the writing point of view, that really worked for me because Spider-Man had never been brought to life correctly and we were doing something that we thought would be interchangeable with a motion picture so um that was all him you know and everything pertaining to the to the look and feel of the show the pacing of the show i don't know that i would have agreed with a lot of the editorial decisions um some people talk about the reuse of animation some of that was deadline oriented and you know when you do a cartoon show you're up against some very tight deadlines and and they were making do with what they had sometimes they had to make things out of footage that had a lot of errors and and they had to they didn't have time to call for retakes so they would fix it on the fly but generally i think bob did a really good job he's a real 
consummate craftsman and he approached the show wanting to give it a tremendous look. I always say, look at Night of the Lizard, where everything came together just the right way, where we, you know, we put our best foot forward. And Bob really did a tremendously wonderful job on that. Um, and that, that episode has it all. It shows like really the full scope of the show, like going from city streets to the sewers. You've got a villain that's really highly dynamic with this long tail. Uh, and lots of webbing and stuff. Yes. You know, again, Bob would pour over pictures of the sewer. He would pour over pictures of city blocks. He would, I, you know, when Spider-Man first encounters the lizard in that courtyard, that, there's a real geography to that courtyard. He's not just jumping from random wall to random wall. There's a, there's a physical geography. There was a physical geography to everything Bob did. And there was a logic behind it. Now, that ideally suited the kind of show that we were creating, you know. So we were in sync as far as that was concerned. There were a lot of things that I wasn't in sync with Bob on, but we were in sync as far as that approach. And I think it came together very nicely. Again, despite the uh, the aging of the animation and, you know, the one or two glaring errors that certainly make me cringe for the most part i think that the show looks spectacular and i think that a lot of that is attributable to bob and his team of genuinely brilliant craftsmen i've been around i've been lucky enough to be around some brilliant artists guys like del barris vladimir suspoyevich i believe is how you pronounce his last name this brilliant perspective artist um hank tucker Amazing storyboards. Bill Ryling, Jim James. These guys, um, some of them have gone on to become very good friends of mine. Some of them I've lost contact with completely. But I greatly admire the work that they put into this. Now, I have to say this, though, about the 3D backgrounds. Um, for years, when I would go on IMDb, there would be this name of this guy. You know, It would say, executive producers of our series... Stanley Aviarad, Stanley Liu, L-I-U. And I would think to myself, I never met a Stanley Liu. I have no idea who this guy is. <laughs> I have no idea why his name is sitting on IMDb or on Wikipedia as, a, as an executive producer. Well, it turns out that he was a guy that worked for a company called Kronos that produced those 3D backgrounds. Bob hired these guys. They were subcontractors, and they produced... I don't know, you know, maybe four or five, maybe only three or four elements, background elements that we ended up reusing a number of times. And this was Bob's idea. So it was Bob's idea to have those 3D backgrounds, very revolutionary for its day. Um, but this guy, I, you know, who was he? Well, he was a guy that worked for Kronos, and he was a producer at Kronos. Maybe he owned Kronos. I don't know. Anyway, I, I really, it annoys me that people like that put their names on IMDb as if they were more than what they were. You know, he was not, not an executive producer on the show. Um, so to be clear, and I always set the record straight in these interviews, the show was produced, executive produced by Stanley Aviarad. Supervising producer was Bob Richardson, and Bob was responsible for everything visual that you see and for pulling the show together. And um, then there's me. I'm the producer. And the head writer. And then there was our production supervisor, John Cauley. That is it. That's the hierarchy. 
that made the show. So anything you see on IMDb or Wikipedia, people are always adding their names to the show. The last time I checked Wikipedia, two women had added their names to our show as executive producers, and I'd never heard of them. Um, so I wanted to set the record straight while we're on this business of who did what and, and you know, who is responsible. But Bob did a really wonderful job. So um, and, and the art team was based out of California, if, I, if I'm not correct. We were it? all, yes, we were all in Westwood in the beginning, uh, and then we moved to Van Nuys. We were all in the same building. Um, and as I say, I got, you know, when, you're, when you work with people for three years... You really do get to know them pretty well, and uh, I still use Del Barris when I'm developing new shows and going out and pitching. I still call up Del, and he does a lot of the artwork for me. I am friends with one or two other people. Uh, we're certainly in contact via Facebook and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was it was a great setup, especially when we moved out of the uh, New World building in Westwood. I think the New World building was a little cramped and and not as much fun. The only cool thing about the New World building was that when the footage came in and when they put the shows together, we would all crowd into the theater. There was a theater in that building, and we would actually see the episodes for the first time on the big giant movie screen. Oh, that's great. That was great. That was like a movie every week, you know, that we had made. And it was <laughs> No one can claim that. Exciting thing. It was, it was, uh, I remember when the Venom saga came in, wow, you know, that was just like a powerful movie that we had made. And that was a real rush. Um, well, there I, are errors. Yeah, go on. No, go ahead. I was going to say, there are errors that creep into uh, a number of the shows. Um, and, you know, I, I think that uh, we were all keenly aware of them uh, at the time. Um, but, the great things about the show overweigh, you know, outweigh the, uh, the the few what I consider to be minor errors. So uh, generally, I think the show is quite epic. One decision that Bob made, though, that I actually went to him and I asked him to do it differently, and and he said no, and I think it was the wrong decision. I did want him to do the show in the uh, widescreen format. Um, yeah. High Def TV had not arrived yet, but I knew it was coming, and shows like Batman had switched over. They were doing stuff in the letterbox format in anticipation of High Def, and I thought that we should be doing our shows in High Def. And I went to him very early on and said, Bob, have you considered doing the show in High Def? And he said, no, I don't want to do that, and that was that. Uh, but I think that was the wrong decision. So anyway, for the record. So speaking of limitations of the time, um, you know, I can't tell you how many, how innumerable number of uh, articles that I've read about the censorship surrounding the show and like yeah. ideas that you weren't able to mention or depict death or that, you know, and so your characters would disappear into portals or Spider-Man couldn't punch anyone and Morbius yeah. would drain people through his hands. Could yeah. you talk about working around these constraints if these constraints existed at all? Well... <laughs> Am I talking too much? Because I'm about to now go into a major rant and rave. <laughs> no, please. I want to. I want to hear all about it. Okay. Um, John Semper did a, a remarkably stupid thing, and I will take full credit for having done this stupid thing. You know, when you do these panels very early on, you're always searching for a way to make them interesting, and. Clever me, I thought, hey, 
I'll read some of the funny network notes that I've gotten uh, from, you know, on the show. Now, I'd been working in television for years. I'd been show running for years. These kinds of notes were just a part of life. No different. I, I did not get notes any different from anyone else making animation for children then and probably now. Nothing changes. But I thought I'd be clever, and I would go on these panels, and I would say, hey, let me read you these notes. And I'd read some of the notes, and they, everyone would laugh, and it was, a little, it was a little vaudeville act, okay? I think I did a, a, a fairly notorious interview for um, Toon Zone, the website Toon Zone, where, again, I brought this up, thinking that I was being funny and witty and clever. And I said, you know, we couldn't do this, and we couldn't do that, and, you know, be careful that, I got a note once, be careful that when Spider-Man lands on the roof, uh, you know, he doesn't harm the pigeons, which is a real note that I did get. Um, and, you know, and I thought I was being witty and clever. Well, I didn't anticipate the way that the Internet was going to end up working. Well, first of all, there was no Internet when I, when I did that interview um, the Internet was just getting going, and there really wasn't much of an Internet at all when I did Spider-Man. There was nothing, quite frankly. What I didn't realize was that one day somebody was going to compile this as a list and put it on a wiki, and it was going to become gospel, like somehow Spider-Man had gotten more censorship than any other cartoon show in the history of mankind. The answer is, that's ridiculous. We got the same kinds of notes, broadcast standards and practices notes, that the X-Men got, or quite frankly, if you name a show today that's on the air, even on cable, um, as long as it's for kids, they're getting the same kinds of notes. No different. Why? Because no cable entity or broadcast station or supplier wants to have the parents of America go up in arms against their product. So they all pretty much adhere to the same broadcast standards and practices. Now, people always say, but in Batman they did this, and in Batman they did that, and in Batman... Well, Batman was a very unique kind of situation in that it was the first one out the gate, okay? The first couple of shows out the gate on Fox were Batman, X-Men, and Power Rangers, Okay, so, so Fox gets behind Power Rangers. Power Rangers got banned in Canada. Banned. You can, you can Google this. You can find these articles. They still exist. It got banned in other parts of the world for violence. Do you know how skittish that makes a network? Um, so the first season of Batman, the first season of Power Rangers, they were allowed to get away with a lot because they were the first yeah, Batman had blood in the first episode, didn't it? Yeah, they had blood and they had glass and they had, you know, fire and, and creating jeopardy. And they had a lot of things that normally a network wouldn't let you get away with. But Fox was relatively new in the kids area and they were trying to establish themselves. And so, you know, everybody was kind of relaxed. I remember when I was at Warner Brothers and I was working on Static Shock and I went into Alan's office one day and I said, Alan, Tell me something. How were you able to get away with all that crap? And he said, he looked at me and he smiled and he said, son, once upon a time there was Camelot. <laughs> 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 and, 
And if you look at an early Batman episode and then you look at the later Batman episodes, or if you look at all of Superman, I mean, you know, they're operating by the end and by all of Superman, they're operating under the same censorship, the same restrictions that we all were because it all got pulled back in. Now, Batman once again got lucky because it left Fox and it moved over to WB, which was another network that was just starting up and trying to establish itself, Kids WB. And so, again, they got a little bit of leeway. Also, those guys would argue. You know, they would get in the uh, broadcast standards and practices person's face and say, well, you know, we disagree, and they'd get into big fights. I was having enough... There was enough fighting going on in my own home base um, that I really didn't feel like fighting with broadcast standards and practices. Uh, you know, I got along very well. There was a woman named Avery. I can't remember her last name, but her name was Avery, and I got along very well with her. I argued once for the use of a real gun because I thought it was integral to the story. That was when Robbie Robertson, uh, his son, was in a gang, and it turned out that the gang was being run by Tombstone. And I really felt that there needed to be a recognizable gun in, in Randy's possession, the son's possession. And I went to the uh, BSNP person and said, I want this to be a recognizable gun. And she gave in because I really had not caused any huge amount of trouble for, you know, other things. Um, now, the other aspect of this is that I myself had a responsibility as a creator creating a show for Saturday morning for raising all of you young people. And I'm not a person personally who believes that showing a lot of violence and showing a lot of gunplay to kids is a really great idea. So I really didn't have a lot of trouble with the restrictions. But for the record, we got no different treatment than anyone else on Saturday morning. We got nothing that I wasn't already used to. In fact, we probably got away with way more than I expected that we would get away with. And anyone who seems to think, I, you know, I've come across this comment online and it infuriates me, is when I read something, someone will go, well, I like that Spider-Man show, but I have a problem with all that censorship. All that censorship just ruins it for me. I, it's, it's The show is doomed and fatally flawed by all that censorship. Well, that's just bullshit. I mean, it's no different than the same broadcast standards and practices of a show that would be on the air right now. And there's no way it can have ruined it for you. You know, for anyone that can look at the depth of storytelling that we had and then be bothered by the fact that we had a laser rifle instead of an Uzi, I don't understand that. That's just silly to me. So, so, so but from a writer's point of view, I mean, not yeah. saying that your show is unique in any way, but right. like just from a writer's point of view, what's it like to write like, you know, these stories knowing that, you know, you don't want to portray those particular things? Uh, you know, I don't think we thought that way, though. I, you know, as I say, it came into play when it had to do with Felicia Hardy and Gwen Stacy. Um, you know, when I made a decision, well, we can't kill anyone. It came into play when I found a way to get rid of Mary Jane off the bridge that wasn't death. It came into play when it was Michael Morbius and we did not want to show blood. But I didn't have a problem with that either because he wasn't really a vampire. He wasn't a real vampire. I mean, 
he looked like a vampire, so they would have assumed he was a vampire. But the fact of the, of the matter was, in my series, he was a genetic mutation. It never bothered me as a child. Yeah, of course. I mean, these things are completely irrelevant. What happens is there's this whole cult of people who call themselves critics, who make a living off of being online trashing things. And so if there's, a fa if there's any kind of a tiny anything like this that they can grab hold of, if there's any little meat on the bone like this that they can grab hold of, then it becomes a thing, you know? The Michael Morbius becomes a thing. But the fact of the matter is, plot-wise, it doesn't change anything. It really doesn't. Because the key to good plotting is character interaction and suspense and conflict. And you can have all of those things without having to have people bleeding, people puking, and people dying. I mean, the, none of those other three things that I just mentioned are integral to great dramatic storytelling. <laughs> There's not vomit the movie every summer. Absolutely. And Shakespeare did not rely upon these things to create literature that has lasted for hundreds of years. So, um, personally, I felt no limitation whatsoever. None whatsoever. I got to tell the stories that I wanted to tell. And I actually think that the uh, um, sending Mary Jane into the other dimension, um, instead of having her die falling off the bridge, opened up a whole new realm of possibilities plot-wise for us, because we could then establish that, you know, that that dimensional portal stuff was going on, and the multi-dimension stuff was going on, and we could, have, we could have the Green Goblin continue to live as kind of a phantom haunting his son. Harry and you know it, for me it made the show richer and it usually does if you art is the practice of constraint of constraint working within constraints a painter does not paint wherever he wants a painter defines a border and says I'm only going to go this far and I'm you know this wide and this high and then paints within that context that's what defines the art is how you place your objects on the canvas based upon the limitations between reality and the representation of reality. So limitations to me foster creativity. They don't make me think that things are ruined, you know. And um, Hollywood could use more of that opinion. Well, of course it could. And I think one of the reasons, nothing pisses me off more than when I turn on a sitcom and they tell a fart joke, and they tell a puke joke, and they tell a, you know, a vagina joke, and you're supposed to laugh at these things like there's something funny going on. Well, you know, it's not, none of that stuff is funny to me. It's, it's how you work without having to rely upon those things to lean on. It's how do you make funny happen when you have to genuinely think something through and be clever with timing and pacing. You know, I just went to an evening with... Uh, Eric Idle and John Cleese, Eric Idle interviewing John Cleese, and I'm a huge Monty Python fan. And these two guys could do a whole evening of tremendous humor and, writ, and wit just off the cuff because they're brilliant thinkers. And I have so much respect for that. Or, or a comedian like Eddie Izzard, who never does blue material and, and just has me on the floor. I'm very fortunate. Eddie Izzard works out all his, his material here in Los Angeles uh, at, at little one-man shows that he does at various venues around town. So I've had the opportunity to see him many times. And I'm amazed at how clever he is and how adept he is 
mentally at creating humor out of situations. Those are the guys that I admire. So not being able to do that violent stuff. I mean, sorry I got philosophical for a moment there. No, it's great. It reminds me of, like, Seinfeld. Like, the funniest parts of that show are where they are making sexual innuendos without actually being able to say it. Absolutely. That's where you get genius humor. And, and, you know, this, this whole gross wave, this wave of gross humor that seems to have now defined humor, I don't think any of this stuff is going to last because it just doesn't, it, it, there's no cleverness behind it. You can't marvel at the thought that goes into it because there's no thought going into it. So uh, I think our show, one of the reasons that it is as good as it is, is because we worked very cleverly within constraints. So I, I, I think that's our strength. I don't think that's our weakness. So, um, you know, while we're on the topic of dispelling rumors, yes. uh, one of the other things that I've heard is, like, you know, Sandman never made an appearance on the show. Uh, you had Hydro-Man. Right. Um, who was very much a, like, D-list character in the comics. Right. Um, and I've heard the rumor that Sandman and Electro were meant to be in uh, Jim Cameron's Spider-Man movie, for those of you who don't know, he was meant to be making a Spider-Man movie in the 90s that kind of fell through. And you guys felt the pressure to, not the pressure, but the desire not to repeat what he was doing uh, in well, that it, movie. It wasn't even pressure. It was, we were flat out told not to. Oh. These were, these were, this was all part of the political turmoil. Now, I'll tell you a funny pre-story. I was at the party. Stan Lee held a Christmas party. And at that party was Margaret Lesh, the head of Fox TV. Fox Kids, and um, Jim Cameron was there, and Gail Ann Hurd, and a whole bunch of luminaries were there. And at that party, I believe that was when the deal came together that that um, there should be a Spider-Man animated show because Jim Cameron was working on a Spider-Man animated movie, and this was going to be the biggest thing in the world. And I was in one particular circle of people talking where Margaret said, we'd love to do a show. And so my memory is that it was Stan, Jim Cameron, Margaret, and I happened to be standing nearby. And Margaret said, we'd love to do a show. We'd love to, you know, if you're going to do Spider-Man, we want to do a Spider-Man show. And we could have someone really talented who knows the character do the writing. And she actually gestured toward me. Now, unfortunately, when it came time to do that show, I was not the first person chosen. But I was there when that show was at least conceived. Uh, it was the whole reason that Fox committed to 65 half hours. Nobody does a 65 half hour order anymore. But the whole reason they committed to it was because of this Jim Cameron movie that, that was going to be the biggest thing in the universe. When I got on the show, I was told flat out, there is a document. Jim Cameron has written an outline. It's brilliant. It's the most brilliant outline ever written in the history of movie outlines. And we are not to touch anything that's going on in that outline. So here are the villains you cannot use. You cannot use Sandman. You cannot use Electro. Okay, fine. You know, again, I take limitations as a, as a plus, not a minus. I wasn't that crazy about not being able to use Sandman because I didn't care about Sandman. I, I'm, you know, I wasn't all that fond of Sandman. It didn't matter. And Hydro Man is Sandman, just with water instead of sand. <laughs> so I got around that 
limitation by doing uh, Hydro Man. And we had Rob Paulson come in and do the voice of, of Hydro Man, and he's brilliant. And, you know, the whole stalking thing was just so much fun. I mean, I loved, I loved using Hydro Man. So... He's almost more perfect for New York because there's a lot more water than there is sand. Than there is sand. Exactly. You know, Sandman was one of those early characters. Even the way that he was drawn, I just found him boring. So it was kind of like, you can't use Sandman. Great. Okay. Twist my arm. (laughs) (laughs) I'm okay with that. You know. Electro did make an appearance, though, eventually. Yes. Well, With with a different name, too. Fast forward three years later, and Jim Cameron's movie is not going to happen. And I thought, well, the only character that I wasn't allowed to use that I really care about was Electro. So let's use him, but I want to do it. I want to do him in a really big way that nobody's expecting. And and so I did that whole controversial, you know, Six Forgotten Warriors thing that culminated with Electro. Again, I didn't, you know, no one was expecting it. I didn't want to do anything that anyone would ever expect. And I thought, if I have this all culminate with this character turning himself into Electro, people are just going to flip because it's so unexpected. And uh, I know that some people find it controversial because it's not the Electro in the comic book, man. But, you know, who cares? Um, It was just this big, epic, wonderful ending um, to Six Forgotten Warriors, which I haven't seen in 20 years. So I, I hope I'm remembering it correctly. Um, but no, I loved, I loved being able to do that with him at the very end. And as I say, at the very end, I was pretty much able to do whatever I wanted because there was no oversight. Everybody was just trying to get the show done. Marvel was falling apart. New World was falling apart. And um, the toy line had been a success. So I was, on, I was clearly not going to screw up the toy line. And, and that was the biggest, most important thing. Uh, and so I thought, hell, I'm going to do Electro, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So there you go. It's so funny that you say that the movie was to you know, have Sandman and Electro and be animated because all the reports I've heard about the movie since have said that it was Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus as portrayed by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and it would be live action. I'm, I'm get, this movie must have gone through the ringer. Well, it wasn't going to be animated, um, but but it was going to be uh, Sandman. It was going to be a live-action movie, big live-action movie. Um, Jim Cameron, I mean, you couldn't get any bigger than Jim Cameron, even now. And um, he was going to use Electro and Sandman, and that was it. I don't know. I never read the outline. As far as I know, the outline is in a trash heap somewhere out in Cucamonga. The best outline ever. Have you read it? No, no, no. I'm just... no. But it was it was the best outline ever. It truly, yeah. I mean, that's all I heard was how, you know, this outline was going to simply redefine motion picture for the for the rest of humanity and probably throughout the galaxy. I, I have read reports that say that Gwen, the Gwen Stacy death occurs in the very first movie, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was one of the big like sticking points that uh, against it was that people thought it was going to be too violent. Um, of an introduction of Spider-Man, which, yeah, which I don't know. It's not that surprising given <laughs> uh, Jim Cameron, but um... I'll tell you the only thing I know about the outline. I was not allowed to read the outline. I wasn't important enough to be able to to read the outline, um, and that's just as well. I had no interest in reading the outline. But all I know, because I had a conversation with Stan once, where he took me aside and he and he said, because Stan and I were pretty good friends, so we used to just have conversations. And he said the only thing that bothered him 
was that Jim wanted to make Spider-Man have the uh, organic webbing, which Sam Raimi did too, as I recall, um, where the webbing would just shoot right out of his wrist instead of having the contraption. And Stan wasn't too happy with that idea. Just, just you know, privately, he wasn't too thrilled with that idea at, at that time. Uh, now, I doubt that Stan would care one way or another now. But at that particular moment, that's all I know about the uh, Jim Cameron outline. You know, the two villains I couldn't use and the fact that Stan was not happy with, with the organic webbing. But that's it. I never read the document. What I did tell my writers was that um, I said, at one point, Jim Cameron's not going to make a movie, so let's make Jim Cameron's movie. And I started doing what I call the Spider-Man movies, which is where you get the Six Forgotten Warriors, Chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. If you join them all together, they're a movie. And there's one company, there's one home video company in Canada, I believe, that figured this out. They figured out what I was doing. And they released all of these as movies. Sins of the Fathers and um, Partners in Danger. And these are movies because I just decided, "Ah, I'm going to make my own damn movie. Well, it's kind of so, how comics work now. There's six-issue trades. Right. Well, imagine if you could do that with six episodes of a, of a, of a cartoon show and, and, and end up joining them all together and end up with a movie. And that's what I did. And a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people um, get very worked up about this. They say, you know, those first 13 episodes are great because they're just individual episodes and they're solid and they tell a complete story. And, and then later on, the series just kind of fell apart because it's going every which way. And, well, no, if you're not an idiot... And if you just simply watch the shows, you can follow what's going on, and they're plotted out like movies. And I actually think that that's when the show becomes fun and exciting and epic. So that's my justification for that. So talking about controversial uh, – I mean not controversial decisions, but different decisions, you mm-hmm. uh, introduced the Hobgoblin before the Green Goblin. Can you speak to that decision as well? Yeah, it was not my decision, and I argued. Remember I said at the very beginning there were a couple of decisions that were made that I had to stick to, and one of them that I didn't argue with was him being a college student because that didn't bother me. I argued vehemently against starting with the Hobgoblin because the Hobgoblin was boring, and I did not want to uh, use the Hobgoblin first. And... Unfortunately, that was the one creative decision that my predecessor made that I was stuck with. And the reason he made, or I don't know why he made the decision, but because he had made that decision, Avi had started to roll out a Hobgoblin toy because he had been convinced that the Hobgoblin was a more significant character than the Green Goblin. And when I got there, I said, no, you got it wrong. It's the Green Goblin that's the real significant character, and the Hobgoblin is not. And there was one moment where I I got him to agree that I could use the Green Goblin first. And then the following day, he came to me and he said, no, I've given it some thought and I just have that toy coming out and I got to stick with that. And at that point, I thought, you know what? I understand. You know, I've given I put up the good fight and um, and he's right. You know, he's got to he's got to look after his his uh, concerns, his business concerns, because that's what's paying for all of this. That's what's making all of this possible. So, okay, we'll do the Hobgoblin. Um, There's a lot more to this story because there's some funny stuff involved. But 
The most interesting thing about the Hobgoblin for, for me was that we, it was probably one of our first two-parters, or I think Spider Slayers was kind of a two-parter, a multi-parter, but Hobgoblin was a definite two-parter. And um, we had Mark Hamill come in to do the voice of the Hobgoblin, and that was fun. Working with Mark was fun because he's brilliant. He's a really great talent. But other than that, I, you know, I don't like that story, and I'm not fond of that character, and the show for me didn't get interesting until we got to the Green Goblin, and I figured out a way for the Hobgoblin to have logically preceded the Green Goblin. So that made it okay for me, you know, to figure out why one would have preceded the other. Um, But I took great vindication in the fact that when, when... the Spider-Man toys hit the toy shelves in Toys R Us. They flew off the shelves, but the only toy that you could find sitting on the shelf after a certain point was the Hobgoblin. <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't a very popular toy. Vindication. It was vindication. It really, um, I find the Hobgoblin, and I know that, you know, there's some fans out there that go, oh, no, he's my favorite character, he, man. He is my favorite villain. You know, you suck, but um, the reality is I never found him to be all that interesting, so... There you go. So um, one thing I will say, when I was a kid and I was watching your your show, um, I was devastated by the ending of the show. Oh, yes. With the Mary Jane water clone. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it really just kind of upset me in in a way that I don't think I had been upset in (laughs) entertainment before. Um, Good. That's what it was supposed to do. (laughs) I mean (laughs) – just the, the the character dissolving into nothing. Oh, wasn't that tragic? It was. I mean, it was like looking back on it. I you know I've since seen it again, and it is kind of a beautiful moment. Her kind of passing on, you know, that she has fallen in love with him as well, and that Mary Jane is out there looking for him. But it yeah. was. I mean, ta- uh, you know, people that complain about this, you know, supposed, you know. Uh, Censoring of your show, I need to think, need to watch this moment and oh, realize yes. how devastating it is. Yeah, so it's you, death. <laughs> yeah, it we is. Did death. It is. And this is the woman he married to. I mean, yes. woman in a loose term. Can you talk yeah. about the decision to one, do this, and two, was there ever going to be? I'm sure if there were been more episodes, you would have concluded that story. Yes. Um, yeah. Because just well, the idea as a kid that there's a Mary Jane falling through an interdimensional portal. Um, never to be found again was just disturbing to say the least. Yeah. Well, you see, that's, that's, that's what drama does. That's what good drama does is it sticks with you. When, when Gwen Stacy fell off that bridge in the comic book, that stuck with me. You know, when Spider-Man was holding her dead, you know, body in his arms after she fell off that bridge, you never forget that stuff. And I wanted, I definitely wanted to recreate that kind of depth of despair in your little mind, um, because that's the stuff that that really makes it epic and m- makes it mythology. You know, it, it you never forget those moments, and they are big moments, and they're grand moments. I used to tell my writers, "We're writing opera. Always find the operatic moment for me, please." Where, you know, let's let's find the moment where the character breaks down and sings that, you know, that. Aria, you know, that, you know, Pagliacci. <laughs> it's, it's, just find that moment. 
I love when he's, you know, after she dissipates, when he's just kneeling, here he is, this powerful superhero, and he's about to be inundated with water, and he doesn't care. He's in such despair that he's just kneeling there screaming Mary Jane. You know, there are these people that run around talking about, oh, the censorship, man, it's, you know, it sucks. The show sucks because of censorship. We killed Mary Jane. They don't even notice it because they're too busy, you know, regurgitating some foolishness that they read on, on Wikipedia. And we killed Mary Jane. We, you know, gave Randy the gun. Um, we did a lot of stuff like that. And it was powerful and it was epic. And uh, I live for those moments. There was no run up to that. When I married Peter off to Mary Jane, I knew that I was going to do I knew that she was a water clone. I knew that all along. I, you know, that, that was me. That was my plot. Um, I think it was very frustrating for Bob Richardson when I, when I had Peter speaking of plotting and the, it all being in my head. When I had Peter building up to this big epic conclusion that Madam Webb was preparing him for, nobody in, in the production knew what that was. That was all just sitting in my head. Had I been hit with a bus, hit by a bus, uh, uh, heaven forbid, uh, n- no one would have known <laughs> where it was all headed. But I did. I knew where I was going with it. And um, uh, and I, so when Mary Jane, you know, found out that she was a clone, that was not something that, that I just went, oh, gee, that'll be fun. It was something I had planned in advance because you can't let Peter be happy. OK, that's one of the sort of rules of writing Spider-Man of that era was that Peter was not a guy who was destined to have happiness. And when... He felt, you know, he revealed himself to Mary Jane and, he, and they fell in love and he proposed and they got buried. It was all just a setup. Uh, I knew that I was going to kill her off that way. Um, so I won't apologize for that, for that trauma that I caused, because that's part of what great storytelling is, epic storytelling. What I will apologize for, though, is the very end where Peter did not get together with Mary Jane. And I'm sure you were going to ask me about that. Um, I've said this many times before, so forgive me for being redundant. When, you know, people think that I had Stan in there as a gimmick at the very end, but it wasn't, because what I was doing was I was I was finishing up the Joseph Campbell monomyth, which is that <clears throat> the hero is always a reluctant hero in the monomyth. This is, the monomyth is the, the mythological structure that is the basis of pretty much all mythology in the world. Um, Joseph Campbell was the first guy who realized that no matter what myth you looked at, it all basically had the same structure. And one of the, one of the mandates was that the hero has to be reluctant. He isn't somebody who walks into the scene and says, I'm going to be a hero, and then starts doing heroic things. He's a guy who's probably the last person you would expect to be the hero. And he gets dragged into being the hero inadvertently. And he doubts himself. And as he goes through the trials and tribulations, he's never, ever sure that he's going to be the man who can handle the task in front of him. That's the classical hero. But when the hero turns to his creator and says, guess what, I believe in myself now, and I like myself, and I know I can kick ass. And in in the case of our show... He says that because he just saved all of reality. He didn't just save the planet. He didn't just save the galaxy. He saved all of reality. Um, When he turns to his creator and says, I'm a pretty great human being, 
then the hero's quest as a myth is over. His, you know, he can continue his life and he can continue being a great guy, but from the perspective of mythology and a tale told around the campfire, there's no more story to tell. It's over. And that was really Peter Parker's saga. Whether he got Mary Jane or not was completely irrelevant, to me at least. But it was relevant to all of you kids, and I really wasn't paying attention to that. And so that was, that was my one mistake, you know, for which I, I, I apologized on the panel for uh, traumatizing all of you. Um, I did leave the door open for myself to be able to continue this series if by some miracle we had gotten a few more episodes to do. Uh, I wanted to have Peter find Mary Jane in uh, Victorian London and um, and have to deal with Carnage, who was now basically Jack the Ripper. That was, you know, had they oh. called me and said, <clears throat> yeah, had they called me and said, we're going to do some more episodes, <clears throat> excuse me, I was going to um, have Peter, uh, traveling through dimensions, he was going to discover that Mary Jane had ended up in, a, in an alternate dimension, uh, Victorian London, where fictional characters were real. Uh, I wanted him to meet Sherlock Holmes, because that's another one of my things. I love Sherlock Holmes. And, and, uh, <laughs> I wanted him to meet up with Sherlock Holmes. I wanted him to meet up with a so kind of a steampunk version of himself. Um, uh, J. Jonah Jameson would have been an, you know, an, an American who was vacationing in, in London and, you know, and, and uh, so, yeah, I had this whole thing that I had invented in my head and Carnage was going to be Jack the Ripper. And Peter realized that it was the Mary Jane of his reality and it was the Carnage of his reality and he had to get both of them out of there, obviously to save Mary Jane, but also to get carnage out of this reality where he didn't belong, where he was killing people. He was actively killing people. Um, that was what I had in mind. And, you know, I don't know that I, how much of that I would have continued, but uh, I was, you do what you're supposed to do, which is you leave a door open for the, um, for the, you know, the, the show to continue being successful and for there to be a plot and everything. But I thought that I had indicated enough that if we didn't continue beyond the 65, that Peter would find Mary Jane and everything would be fine. But uh, as I said, apparently I traumatized all of you poor little kids by not showing that ending. So uh, I do apologize for that. Well, mission accomplished. <laughs> um, so uh, can you speak to about working with such wonderful actors like Christopher Daniel Barnes and Ed Asner and, and, the, re and the rest of your team? It's the best. I mean, that was the high point of my life was when I... Uh, found myself sitting next to Ed Asner at the, at the table read. I was sitting at a table next to Ed Asner, and across the table was Brock Peters. And these are people whom I admired and who were really the giants of the industry, and many more to come. But with that first table read, I, I could barely talk. I was so nervous, and I was so in awe of who was sitting next to me. And it makes you up your game. You know, when you know that you're going to be going into a recording booth. Prior to that, I had only worked with cartoon talent. And they're great fun. You know, a lot of them are great friends. I'd worked with you know, wonderfully talented people like Rob Paulson and Bob Bergen and uh, Barbara Goodson and Jennifer Hale and, and you know, and, and Saratoga Ballantyne and, and, of course, Chris Barnes. But most of these people had been in the industry doing cartoon voices 
And I had worked at Hanna-Barbera where, you know, I, I had written for people like Dawes Butler and Don Messick and, and John Stevenson and all the, all the usual suspects. And suddenly on Spider-Man, they were bringing in people who had done on-camera work and I, whom I had seen in movies and television and I had grown up watching in, in TV shows. And I'm rubbing shoulders with Rue McClanahan and I'm rubbing shoulders with Edward Mulhair and I'm rubbing shoulders with, you know, uh, all these famous people, Martin Landau. And it was just an amazing time, an amazing moment in time. I had so much fun in the green room listening to these people tell stories. Martin Landau telling stories about it. I talked with Martin Landau about, for about 45 minutes after we finished the recording session. And he was telling me all about working with Hitchcock on uh, North by Northwest. And, and emulating Bella Lugosi for Ed Wood. Uh, like two weeks later, he won an Academy Award for Ed Wood. But I had had him sitting right next to me explaining to me how he had conjured up Bela Lugosi. He said, John, he was unique. Whenever he smiled, his lips curled downwards at the corner instead of upwards. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and, then he, and then he did it for me. You know, he showed me and suddenly his face became Bela Lugosi. It was amazing. So I was in heaven. And he left the show shortly after winning the award, didn't he? Yes, we couldn't get him back because now he was his career had had this second wind, and we we couldn't get him back to do a cartoon show. So I think we cast Richard Mall after that. Um, one of the one of the people that we couldn't quite get was my hero Patrick McGowan. Um, I've been a Patrick McGowan fan since I was a kid when I fell in love with the greatest TV show of all time, Secret Agent, mm. uh, also known as Danger Man in England. Um, I that show was brilliantly written, and I wanted McGowan to be the Beyonder, and uh, they got me his number, and I called him up and I left a message because he couldn't. He he doesn't have an agent. You you call you would call him, and if he if he thought you were legitimate, he would call you back. So I left a message, and he called me back, and that was. One of the high points of my life was uh, talking to Patrick McGowan and trying to get him to do the role. Unfortunately, at that particular moment, they had just approached him to write a screenplay for a proposed prisoner movie. And he was heavily immersed in that. And, uh, and uh, you know, he, he, he paid me. The one supreme compliment that he paid me was he said, he said John, I don't know that I'm going to have time to do it, but you got a great voice. You got a great voice. I like your voice. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm in heaven. Patrick McGowan has complimented my voice. Did you do your impression of him to him? No, Lord, no. <laughs> I'm not that goofy. Um, but no, he was the only one that we didn't get. But we got, every, I mean, you know, I'm a big Trekkie. And I said, get, get, you know, George Takei to do this and get Nichelle Nichols to do that. And they did. And all, next thing I know, I'm sitting next to these people, and I became friends, at least for a little while, with Nichelle. Uh, and I got invited to a few parties at her house. And George, I, I, uh, I got to work with. And Majel Roddenberry we brought in, and she and I later became business partners. So that was, you know, a very nice association. Uh, and I'm still very close to her son. Um, and, um, no, I was in heaven. I mean, l listen... Despite all these other things that I might 
you know, complain about like, you know, the, 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 the censorship rap that we've gotten and all that kind of stuff. Spider-Man was the greatest show in the world. I was in the greatest position. I was the luckiest human being on the planet. And I'm still lucky because people are still people like yourself are still really appreciating the show. And I there's you know, you can't buy that with money. You can't wish that by rubbing a genie lamp. I, I, I was in the greatest position on the planet, and we brought in some amazing actors. I got to work with some amazing actors. So do you have a favorite character on the show? I mean, Peter Parker might be like an easy like choice, but do you have a favorite? Well, I certainly had to identify with Peter. You know, when, when you're writing, you have to crawl into everyone's head. And uh, um I really, I enjoyed, oh, one thing I didn't talk about, I didn't talk about my cast, I didn't talk about specifically Saratoga Ballantyne, wonderful talent, Jennifer Hale, brilliant, 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 I mean, Jennifer is one of the busiest people working in, uh, I think she holds some record for having done the most number of voiceover, female voiceovers uh, ever, you know, you, you'll have to look that up, she's, she's like the June foray of our era, um, uh, Rodney Salisbury, wonderful guy, great friend. Uh, Greg Berger, wonderful talent. All all my guys, you know, uh, Bob Bergen, Rob Paulson, um, you know, to go from Pinky to Hydro Man, uh, you know, uh, it's amazing. The, the, these people are <laughs> phenomenally talented. Gary Imhoff. Gary Imhoff is not human. He was the voice of Harry Osborne. I once went to a musical that Gary Imhoff starred in that was produced by Dana Broccoli, the wife of Cubby Broccoli of, of, of 007 fame. And Gary pranced around on that stage and sang at the top of his lungs for the full 90 minutes, the full two hours that that thing was, was being presented. It's not human. I mean, these are tremendously talented people. Spider-Man only gives you an opportunity to just get a, a tiny taste of their talent. Chris Barnes was brilliant. He was um, uh, just a miraculous choice for Spider-Man. He is a brilliant actor. Uh, he's a good friend, and so much of the success of the show hinged on him. Um, I'll tell you a little behind the scenes. We we came down in in casting Spider-Man. We came down to two people. One was uh, Chris, and the other one was uh, Billy Campbell. Wow! And um, I was a big Rocketeer fan. Uh, I still am a, a, rock, a fan of that movie. And. Uh, you know, I was, it was all star power, and I was excited about Billy Campbell even being in the room. Um, but Chris was the guy. You know, Chris had um, the quality that we were looking for in Spider-Man and also a tremendously youthful energy, and we, we made the right decision. Um, Chris was perfect for the role, and he... Uh, yeah, so I love working with all these guys, and I love working with Ed Asner. He's he has since become uh, a, a nice friend, uh, and uh, I'm I had a fantastic cast. Um, now I guess I should mention that um, I'm bringing them all back. Uh, you know, when I was gathering them all together for the 20th anniversary, it 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 struck me as a waste that we were not actually going to be promoting something new. So I thought, hey, wait a minute, I'm a creative guy. I think stuff up. Why don't I think up something new for us all to do? And I went to them all and I said, you guys want to work on it? And they went, oh, we'd love to work with you, know, with you on another project. So I thought up this thing called uh, War of the Rocket Men, which is um, 
connected to my interest in the old Republic serials of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the serials specifically directed by John Whitney and William, uh, I'm sorry, John English and William Whitney, two of my favorite directors. Um, they directed what I think are the best serials ever made, and I loved their Rocket Man serials, and I want to bring all of that back. The Art Deco, the, uh, the, uh, just the whole Republic feeling. So I'm bringing them back in a project called War of the Rocket Men. We're going to crowdfund it the beginning of next year, January or February of next year. I have got a website, which is www.waroftherocketmen.com. That's waroftherocketmen.com. I've got a Facebook page for it, which is www.facebook.com forward slash waroftherocketmen. Um, I have... This is the plugging part of your interview. Oh, well, I planned on getting to this eventually, so okay, you may as good. well get through now. Yeah. Well, I have a, a website devoted to uh, the series, which will celebrate the 20th anniversary of the series. I'm putting a lot of stuff up on it. I'm also doing a podcast where I'm going to interview a lot of the actors and, and talk to uh, people involved in the production. Uh, it's mostly for fans. I'm not expecting. I'm not expecting to be. A, an internet sensation. It's for people like you who just love this series and want to know all these things. While we're all still around, and hopefully we'll be around for a good long time, um, I want you guys to have access to some of this material. So um, the, the website is cartoonspiderman.com. So that's cartoonspiderman, all one word, dot com. And I'll put and, links to these in the show notes. Thank you. I appreciate that. And then uh, the Facebook page, where I am actually on it every day and I'm answering all the all the questions, even the dumb ones, um, uh, that's uh, facebook.com slash making up Spider-Man the Animated Series. Very long, long uh, name. It's, uh, you know, www.facebook.com slash making up Spider-Man the Animated Series. I am actually the moderator of that page. I am on it every day. And no matter how many times people ask me, how come you didn't have Peter get Mary Jane in the end? I'm going to answer it every time you ask it. So. I'm sorry for, for being part of that uh, <laughs> that angry crowd or whatever. No, actually, you didn't ask that specific question. So I, I, I got to it before you could ask it. So, Great. Uh, well, uh, so back to it. Do you have a favorite character on the show? Oh, okay. Sorry. Yes, I, I wanted to talk a bit about the cast. Um, well, I'll tell you what. My favorite script was one that I wrote uh, called War... Uh, <laughs> called The Day of the Chameleon. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, first of all, I, kudos to my writing staff. Jim Krieg, who has gone on to become a big, fantastic showrunner on his own. And he recently did the, the Green Lantern show, and he did, he's doing some of the Lego stuff. And great writer. Uh, Stan Berkowitz, multi-Emmy Award winner for, went on to, you know, win a lot of awards for Batman. Uh, he segued right over to Warner Brothers after his stint on uh, Spider-Man, and he is I, again. These are these are now the giants of the industry. Um, Ernie Altbacker, uh, still going strong, writing a lot of great animation, and uh, he writes a, a series of books called Shark Wars that are getting a lot of uh, attention. Uh, juvenile, young juvenile fiction. Um, and uh, he's doing really well. Um, 
I had a young lady by the name of McGean McLaughlin. She was part of the staff. She she had the, the feminine perspective on what was going on. Um, who else? Who am I leaving out? Uh, I had uh, a lot of freelancers who were quite brilliant. Brooks Wachtel, Cynthia Harrison, who's now Cynthia Harrison Wallach. Um, and uh, they went on to do documentaries for the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. And, and you know, uh, Brooks is a good friend whom I see fairly regularly. Um, I had a wonderful staff, writing staff, great staff. Um, and they worked really well with me. I usually came up with the stories. We would thrash out, you know, the, the, uh, the beats. And then they go off and write really wonderful scripts. And then I would rewrite them. And it all worked out beautifully. So uh, I had a good time with all those people. Sean Derrick was another uh, writer that I used a lot. And she did some wonderful work. So anyway, really great stuff. Um, my favorite episode is Day of the Chameleon. I originally was going to hand it off to Meg. And I started outlining it with her over the phone. By the way, I taped every one of my writers' conferences. So I have, I have all of this on audio tape. Oh, wow. Amazingly. I have everything on audio tape. I was obsessed. <laughs> Avi, I remember Avi started once having a meeting with me and I turned on my recorder and I slid it forward and he said, I feel like I'm in a deposition. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, rec- I have a whole archive of, of audio recordings of me thinking up all the stories with the writers and me having meetings with Stan and Avi and the whole deal. Um, I started to work it out with Meg and she was just not really taking to it. And I was getting, the more I worked out the plot, the more excited I was getting. And then finally, I got to the, the, you know, I got about midway through it, and I said, you know what, I'm going to write this one myself, (laughs) because it was just, I was having so much fun with it. And the little things that are in it that I'm very proud of, you know, I I, I love the moment where they say, um, oh, no, the chameleon, he's headed for the rooftop. And then you see him go down to the basement. You know, I love that. I love (laughs) little things like that. And then there's a... uh, uh, the, the whole fact that you never hear his voice, you never hear the chameleon talk. Whenever he speaks, it's while he's in the guise of someone else. I remember when they were casting it, they said, who are we going to get for the chameleon? And I said, ahem, there is no one you need to get for the chameleon. <laughs> <laughs> because he never talks. And they hadn't, they hadn't noticed. They had not noticed, you know. And uh, I'm very proud of that. Um, so little touches in that one and the whole switch of the eye patch and everything. I just love that script to death. I, I'm, I'm very proud of it. I got nominated for an Annie Award. It was like, you know, the easiest script for me to write because I, I had it all worked out. Only one bit got taken out, and that was where Peter d- deduced something because I always wanted Peter to remain a scientist and remain a bit of a detective. And uh, somebody made the comment, oh, this is like murder she wrote. And, you know, it was a little too much of, of, of a mystery uh, uh, detection story. Uh, and so one little bit got taken out. But it didn't affect the overall story. And uh, I was very, very pleased with the way that turned out. I'll tell you the script that I didn't like. Sure. Would you like an exclusive? Uh, <laughs> yes, always. I, I, I never took to, and I'm talking way too much, so you can you can cut this down if you need to. Um, I never liked the Mysterio story, the first Mysterio story. Even with the wonderful yellow brick road and everything? You know, I'll tell you. They did a very good job on it, and, and Greg Berger did a wonderful job as Mysterio. He's brilliant. He's a great guy. Great talent, Greg Berger. 
Um, but here's what happened on Mysterio. Mysterio is in the first 13, and my job was very much in jeopardy. There were certain political forces that were working diligently to get me uh, uh, removed from the show. And so I was in a, a little bit of a panic, and I, I was under tremendous deadline pressure. And I was looking for writers. I had not yet put together my staff, so I hadn't found the guys. Oh, I left out Mark Hoffmeyer. Mark, Mark was actually, I think, my first hire. And Mark is brilliant. Mark is currently doing a show for Lego right now. Mark's, wow. and he's a great guy. All my guys went on to do great stuff cause, cause, because I chose well. They're all really talented. So I, I, uh, I left Mark out. Um, but I had not hired any of them yet. And so I'm trying to do this with freelancers, and I, I don't know who I can trust. And some people are letting me down, and, and, uh, and I'm, it's very frustrating. And I um, had gotten a recommendation from a prominent producer in another studio, and he said, you know, I've never used this guy, but you should, you should try this guy out. He seems like a bright guy. And I met with the guy, and yeah, he was bright, and I thought, oh, this will work out fine. Now I said to him, now look, I have to deliver this script in a week and a half. It is now, I think it was now Monday, and I had to deliver the script on a Wednesday. And I said, so you got to deliver this to me on Tuesday. And it's got to be really tight because if you screw up in any way, I'm screwed. And what I didn't say was, and my job is hanging by a thread at this particular moment, so I cannot afford to be screwed. So just do the best job you can. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do a great job. Yep, yep. Oh, yeah, got it, got it. Great. So that was Monday. Tuesday rolls by, Wednesday rolls by, Thursday goes by, Friday goes by, Saturday goes by, Sunday. I get a phone call. And this writer starts asking me these questions that you only ask when you're just starting to work on something. And I know this because I'm a writer, and so I know those questions. You know, it's like, um, so, uh who is this character and how do they relate? And he's asking me all these questions. I'm thinking, did this fool actually think that he could start writing this script on a Sunday and deliver it to me on a Tuesday? Oh, my goodness. Well, I got the script on Tuesday, and I think late on Tuesday. And I'm here to tell you that, yeah, 100%, it was the worst piece of garbage I have ever read in my life. And I got a table read scheduled for Wednesday. And if I arrive at this table read and announce to the powers that be that I don't have a script, then guess how thin of a thread my job is going to be hanging on. Because yeah. I get people, you know, whispering in Abby's ear, oh, John Semper can't do this. John Semper, oh, big mistake, John Semper. So I'm like, I got to deliver a script and it's got to be better than this piece of garbage that's in my hands. So I rewrote the Mysterio script from top to bottom in, in, in 24 hours, overnight. Oh, my goodness. Overnight. And, you know, when you're rewriting a script and you're desperate like that, sometimes, if you, you know, it's like any chunk of text that I could find that looked even remotely intelligent, I would just lift and I would plop it into the draft that I was writing because now I'm in a hurry. And... Um, and, and there was one segment that I had lifted from the original draft written by this writer. <clears throat> it didn't make any sense to me, but it made it, you know, when, you, when it's like four in the morning and your mind isn't functioning and you got to 
do something. It made enough sense. So I just stuck it in because now I'm just trying to fill out the pages and trying to create a credible enough draft. Um, and so we get into the table read <laughs> the next day because I show up the next day with a script in hand for the table read and I'm dead tired. I'm bleary. This is this is the glamour of running a show, Dan. <laughs> Oh boy, I, I, I'm, you're making me want to go out and join the, the production teams. This is the glamour. This is the fun part. <clears throat> I'm now, I've now had no sleep. I'm delivering a script that is only, you know, that went from disastrous to vaguely dubious. And I'm now going to stand in a room amongst a bunch of people, several of whom are trying to get me fired. And I'm going to present this script like it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And we're reading the script, and, and Tony Pastor, our voice director, bless his heart, we got to a part, and he said, I don't understand what's happening here. And it was one of those chunks of text that I had just plopped in from the draft when I was in a hurry. <laughs> and, and, and I looked at it, and I, and I thought, oh, God, I don't understand what's happening, <laughs> what's happening there either. I haven't got a clue what that paragraph means. That's how incomprehensible the original script had oh, been. Oh, my goodness. And it was, it was the part where the fireballs, I think, were swirling around Mysterio. But the way that it was written, it was completely incomprehensible. And I finally had to admit, I said, well, look, this draft, you know, came from a writer, didn't do a very good job, blah, 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 blah. Well, that gave all the justification in the world to the people who were desperate to get me fired. John, not, only, not only are we... You know, is John Semper not up to the job? But he's delivering drafts that he hasn't even read. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I, you know, and, and it was useless to explain that I had to that I had written it, you know, overnight and yada yada yada. It was just it was a complete and total loss. To this day, I can't watch the the Mysterio episode because I think I've only watched it maybe once or twice, and it sickens me to the pit of my stomach. Because there's still stuff in there that that first guy wrote, like those fireballs spinning around when he's on the bridge. It's it's just it's just garbage. You Is know? his name attached to the credits on that episode? I don't know, to be honest with you. <laughs> I really can't say, uh, and I and I shouldn't say. Um, all I can say is that's what happened with that script. Um, now it's my work because I did rewrite the script. And it's rewritten top to bottom by me. So what ended up on, on screen was still, you know, 95% what I wrote in my all-night session and then subsequent rewrites. So it's a perfectly credible script, and it's a perfectly good episode. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not embarrassed by the episode. Um, but there, is, there are one or two things that, that came off that original draft that, you know, that make my stomach turn a little bit. It's painful to watch. It is painful to watch. You remember the good ones like, you know, Day of the Chameleon I can watch over and over again because I just, it was such a joy to write. Um, some of the, uh, you know, there, there are moments. I'll tell you, um, each one of the writers, uh, Mark wrote a really funny run, uh, a, a, a dialogue between uh, Jameson and Spider-Man that to this day makes me laugh out loud. And I love watching that episode because Mark, I think, really was the first writer on the staff to find the humor voice of Spider-Man. And I think after that, to a great extent, we were all emulating Mark because Mark had come from improvisational comedy and he had done a really good run. There was like this little interplay between Jameson and Spider-Man. It was brilliant and it was funny. And I love watching that. 
Uh, Berkowitz could always have a really funny line stuck in the middle of things. Like the, his line was, um, um, you made a laughing stock. This is Jameson saying, you made a laughing stock out of me, Brock. All the networks are laughing at me, even Fox. That was a Berkowitz line. <laughs> and I laugh at that to this very day. And uh, Ernie did great work. And, you know, they all did wonderful work, all my staff guys. Um, this was the very early days when I, I had not put the staff together. And some of that stuff is just painful for me to look at. Um, so there, there's a there's a behind-the-scenes story that I've never told before. So Very you interesting. Get, you get the exclusive on that one. And that's the kind of thing we can look forward to hearing in your upcoming show. Yeah, the podcasts, I'm just going to sort of talk about some of this stuff. I'm going to go through the episodes. Um, again, you know, um, assuming I don't get hit by a bus, uh, I'm going to try to get through all 65 episodes and give a commentary on uh, on what went into the making of them and how much of, you know, who was responsible for doing what, uh, at least from the writing perspective and where it stands in, in, the, uh, in the scheme of things and, you know, what were some of the production pressures going on behind the scenes. What about some That's of those audio kind of tapes? I'm going to talk about, hmm? What about some of those audio tapes? Well, I have um, probably not much of that will make it into uh, the podcast. I, although I did a thing, I found an audio tape that I had taken of um, the very first Comic-Con we ever went to. Uh, where we introduced Spider-Man to the crowd. Oh, wow. And uh, that's already in a podcast right now. That's the second podcast I did where I, I get into a TARDIS and I travel back in time and I take everyone into that very day, that very afternoon when we rolled out Spider-Man uh, to, you know, to the audience. And, and, and um, I... Uh, I found that tape. That was my personal tape. I, I had brought a tape recorder, and I set it up next to me right there on the podium. And I had recorded that. And I had never, you know, I put it away and forgotten about it. And I found it, and I thought, well, this I can let people hear because it was a public event. So uh, it's me, Stanley, Chris Barnes, Saratoga Ballantyne, Dennis Venizelos, who was our art director, Bob Richardson, supervising producer. Uh, and Del Barris, who never says a word. <laughs> and that's my number two podcast. So if they get on the uh, Cartoon Spider-Man website, uh, they'll see a link to that, and they can listen to that. The very first time the public was exposed to Spider-Man, the animated series. So um, before we wrap this all up, I have one, que one final question that we ask all of our guests. I refuse to show. answer. <laughs> You'll be the first. Okay. And in line with your keeping everybody on their toes. Um, yes. But uh, uh, taking this more personally, um, yeah. what does it mean to you as an artist that you've had a chance to work on and define a generation of Spider-Man stories and, and fans uh, for that matter? Well, number one, I'm extremely grateful. Number two, it will probably end up being the thing that I'm known for if I'm ever known for anything at all. And I'm okay with that. It was, there have only been two times in my life when anyone allowed me to do my thing and I got to see my thing on screen, um, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, if you, if you, whether you like it or hate it or, or whatever, it's what, it is what it is. And it, especially those later episodes, just went straight from my head onto the screen. And that's, that's extraordinarily rare to have that happen, especially in uh, Saturday morning animation. 
So I'm extremely pleased that this is the thing that represents me. The only other time it happened was when I was working for Jim Henson because Jim was re remarkably generous and he would just kind of turn to you and say, go do your thing. And um, those two occasions, these two occasions, working with Jim and doing Spider-Man are really, they're kind of like now the things that define me as an artist. So they're extraordinarily important to me. That's how I can go on and talk for 90 minutes on, <laughs> on this particular show because I feel so invested in it. You won't catch me talking for 90 minutes with anyone about Scooby-Doo, but this show is um, probably my one big artistic statement. And uh, for better or for worse, you know, if you like it, then I stand by it. And if you hate it, I stand by it. But I stand by it. It's me. And it, it reflects a lot of what I wish I could do more of and, um, and what I'm extremely grateful that I got to do at all. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us, John. You've been more than generous with your time. Well, Dan, thank you for putting up with me for this long amount of time. I think we're the only ones who are actually going to make it to the end of this interview. <laughs> I think you'll be surprised. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, for fans who've reached this far, there's <laughs> congratulations. Well, um, yeah. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, they get a no prize. Remember, Stan, there's no prizes. <laughs> yeah, right. They get a no prize. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. All right, Dan. Thank you for having me. Take care. I want to thank John Tepper Jr. again for taking the time to talk to me about Spider-Man the Animated Series, one of my favorites. So don't forget to visit John's Spider-Man the Animated Series Facebook page for links to all kinds of articles, podcasts, interviews, and announcements about his upcoming work on War of the Rocket Man. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to check out my Spider-Man fan site, SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. There you'll find all of our new Amazing Spider Talk and old Superior Spider Talk podcasts. You can also subscribe to this show on iTunes and Stitcher by searching for Amazing Spider Talk. If you do, please leave us a rating and a comment to let us know how we're doing, and we'll be sure to read it on the air. Both Mark and I work hard to keep you listeners entertained and up-to-date on Spidey, and we'd love to know what you think of the show. If you have any opinions on this episode or Spider-Man the Animated Series or even questions for Mark and myself, be sure to email them to us at AmazingSpiderTalk at gmail.com and we'll definitely read them on the air. If you'd like to follow me online, you can follow my Twitter at at SupSpiderTalk or visit my site. On Superior Spider-Talk this week, we have some wonderful reviews of new comics and even a piece by contributor Alex Nader about how death has been handled in the current Spider-Verse story. So be sure to check it out. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving, complete with great food, friends, and family. And as the great Uncle Ben would say, with great podcasts must also come... Hey, uh, can, you, can you pass the mashed potatoes?